I'm not sure that there's going to be any section of Revelation which is more difficult to expound on in detail than Revelation 9. The biggest issue being that we get focused on some of the sort of questionable details and miss the overarching truth it presents. So we will talk a little this morning, Lord willing, about those details, but my goal is going to make sure that we don't miss the main message of Revelation 9, that that is made clear. Just to remind you where we're at, we're right in the middle of the seven trumpet judgments when the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, breaks open that final seal. There is a silence in heaven for uh, a half an hour and seven trumpets are handed out to seven angels. And we saw last time those seven angels began to sound and each of them brought some sort of natural seeming disaster. The first trumpet back in chapter 8 verse 7 sounded and there was fiery hail mingled with blood destroying a third of plant life. The second trumpet in chapter 8, verses 8 and 9, sounded and something like a great mountain streaks across the sky and splashed into the ocean, destroying a third of the sea creatures and a third of the world's shipping. And in the third trumpet in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 8, saw a star named Wormwood, or literally the word means bitter, fall and Uh, It poisons a third of the fresh water of the earth. And the fourth trumpet, in chapter 8, verse 12, sounds and it affects the sun, moon, and stars so that they uh, are darkened significantly. Remember what we saw at the very end of chapter 8, verse 13. Look at chapter 8, verse 13. And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpets of the three angels which are yet to sound. So as bad as all that was, worse is coming. That phrase, woe, 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 this kind of threefold cry of anguish, misery, despair, it's actually announcing the three final trumpets, trumpets five through seven, each bring a new cause for woe, a new cause for misery. Look down in our our text, well, we're going to read all of chapter nine, but look down at verse 12 for a second. One woe is past, and behold, two more woes are hereafter. So after the fifth trumpet sounds, uh, an angel says, well, that was the first Woe, and there's two more after. So these last three trumpets are each a woe or a a cause for misery. So let's read chapter 9. It says, And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit, and he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth and unto them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. 
And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he strikes a man. And in those days shall men seek death and shall not find it and shall desire to die and death shall flee from them. And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle and on their heads were, as it were, crowns like gold and their faces were as the faces of men and they had hair as the hair of women and their teeth were as the teeth of lions and they had breastplates, as it were breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue, his name is Apollyon. One woe is past, and behold, there come two more woes hereafter. And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the th- four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels, which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. And the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000 thousand, and I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision and them that sat on them having breastplates of fire and of jacinth and of brimstone and the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone but these three was the third by these three was the third part of men killed by the fire and by the smoke and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths for their power is in their mouth and in their tail and their tails were like unto serpents and had heads with them they do hurt And the rest of men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood which neither can see nor hear nor walk neither repented they of their murders nor of their sorceries nor of their fornications nor of their thefts. That's a lot of material. We're going to walk through Revelation 9 this morning in four main points. We're going to see the abyss is opened in verses 1 through 10. The authority is identified in verses 11 and 12. Angels unleashed in verses 13 through 19. And wicked hearts exposed in verses 20 and 21. We see the abyss opened in the first 10 verses. Just look at verse 1. It says, The fifth angel sounded... And I saw a star fall from heaven unto earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. Now, right up front, I need to tell you that my position on Revelation 9 is that this star in verse 1 is a description of Satan. And let me explain why. First, 
the word that John uses here when he says this is a star, you know that I believe we should take the words of John literally unless there is a compelling reason not to. And in verse 1, we do find a compelling reason not to take this literally as a star. The, the star in this text gets assigned masculine pronouns. It's some kind of individual, some kind of person. It says, to him was given keys. And in verse 2, he opened the bottomless pits. This is not a, a star. It is some kind of individual. Second, while our King James Version here says, I saw a star fall from heaven to earth, it makes us visualize that like John watched and, and saw this star falling, but that's really not what he wrote. The word fall there in the original language is in a tense that means it was already done. And so, for example, the New King James Version says, I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. Or I think the NASB does a very good job here when it reads, I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to earth. So this star individual, it's a person, it's some kind of uh, entity, and also it had already fallen before John starts describing this event. There's a third reason we'll see later. I don't want to take the text out of the order that John wrote it, but let me just say this individual is going to be identified even more clearly when we get down to verse 11. So I believe this is Satan. Satan is real. He was created as a holy angel for the purpose of bringing God glory. However, Satan has fallen because of his pride and arrogance. Isaiah 14 describes Satan's intention to exalt himself over the God who created him. And in this sinful rebellion against God, the Bible suggests that a full one-third of the created angels joined him in that rebellion, and thus demons are angelic beings that joined Satan in his sin and were cast down with him. Satan was that subtle deceptive serpent in the Garden of Eden. He is the accuser of the brethren. He's described as a roaring lion that walks about seeking whom he may devour. He's been, in Scripture, assigned the title of tempter, deceiver, accuser, the devil, the great dragon, and even the name Satan, the Hebrew word shatan, the shatan means the adversary. Satan is real and Satan is powerful, so powerful that he is restrained from his evil work only by the power of God who created him. For those of you who are coming on Wednesday nights, we've been doing a quick review of the book of Job. And you'll remember the story begins by God allowing Satan to touch Job's life, but only to that point to which the Lord himself permits Satan does not have more power than God. Satan has more power than you or me. Those strange churches that get together and have prayer services in which they bind Satan, they're not. 
And, and in fact, that's a problem in several ways. First off, it's a theological problem because they're giving him too much credit. Satan is not omnipresent. He doesn't have all the attributes of God. He is not in all places at all times. And so the chance that he chose to be at their church that morning is pretty low. But if he was, you couldn't bind him. And if you could bind him, stop letting him go. Like, tie him up tighter next time. Don't. The only power strong enough to bind Satan is the power of God who created him. God has no difficulty prohibiting Satan's work. However, God himself is not bound to keep Satan restrained. In his sovereign wisdom, the Lord can and does use wickedness to bring judgment on the wicked. We see that in the Old Testament. For example, in the Old Testament, Yahweh says he will use the king of Babylon to come and judge the wickedness of Judah. And then in turn, he will judge the king of Babylon for his arrogance in the process. Revelation 9 represents a time when that will happen again. In the process of bringing judgment to earth, the Lord will use the wicked purposes of wicked fallen angels to bring bring judgment on wicked people. And at all times, it is restrained by his sovereign power and purpose. In many ways, Revelation 9 is the very picture of the phrase, hell on earth. And yet, it will ultimately bring glory to God. There is authority that is given to Satan in verse 1. You may remember the Lord Jesus said, all authority on heaven and earth is given to him. Or Revelation 1 verse 18 describes the Lord Jesus as he's the one with the keys of death and hell. Well, in verse 1, it says of this fallen star, to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. There is some authority here that is designated to Satan, but it's under the higher authority of the God who created him. And look what he does with it. Starting at verse 2, he opened the bottomless pit. And there rose a smoke out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power as scorpions of the earth have power and it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth neither any green thing neither any tree but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads and to them it was given that they should not kill them but that they should be tormented five months and their torment was the torment of a scorpion when he strikes a man and in those days men shall seek death and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. And here's what they look like. The shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle, and on their heads were, as it were, crowns like gold, and their faces were as the faces of men, and they had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions, and they had breastplates, as it were, breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and the power was to hurt men five months. 
Listen, it may surprise you to find that at this moment, not all demons are free to roam the earth. When Jesus and the Gospels cast out that legion of demons from the, the man in Gadara, they begged for him not to cast they, they begged for him to cast them into pigs so that they were not cast, in their own words, into the deep, into the abyss. Second Peter 2:4 says that God did not spare the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them in chains of darkness, reserved until judgment. Jude 6 also says that he reserved some angels that sinned in everlasting chains to the great day of judgment. Y'all, there's a lot that we don't know. In fact, I'm, I'm more certain about how much I don't know than how much I do know about this particular chapter in Revelation. But John describes this bottomless pit, this immeasurable abyss, as it is opened by Satan and smoke belches out, blocking out the light of the sun. And the residents of that abyss come up and swarm over the earth like locusts. As I said, hell on earth. So here I am again, a biblical literalist, about to argue why this isn't literal locusts. They don't do typical locust things. Locusts survive by eating plants, but in verse 4, it says that's not why these are here. They're sent after men. They can't have plants. These locusts sting, unlike regular locusts, which don't sting. These frequently are described as being like a scorpion tormenting with their poisonous stingers. I don't think anybody can really read verses 7 through 10 and think these are any kind of literal locusts that we have ever found on earth. In fact, many years ago, I was certain I knew what these were. I I read things like breastplates of iron and the sound of their wing like the sounds of chariots of many horses running to battle and their stings and their tails. And I thought, oh, this is helicopters. John is doing his best to describe assault helicopters. But... I don't know how they would have faces like men and hair like women and teeth like lions and crowns of gold, right? Y'all, it is best to understand this, I think, as a demonic horde unleashed from the abyss. And John is doing his best to describe them, and he's using the word like very often, right? It's, It's something similar to women's hair, something similar to men's faces, One of the most striking truths, which we shouldn't miss by being fascinated by their description, is that while they have crowns like gold or denoting some authority, they operate solely under the authority of God himself. Even as this demonic horde runs amok over the earth, they are restrained by God's almighty hand. In verse 4, it is commanded that they should not hurt the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who don't have the seal of God in their foreheads. If you remember back in Revelation 7, there was an angel that rose up from the east and it carried the seal of the living God and judgment on the earth was restrained while he sealed the servants of God in their foreheads. Any question that we have of what it meant for them to be sealed 
is now answered. They are claimed. They are protected. They belong to God. This demonic horde cannot touch them. The rest of humanity, those who don't have the seal of God on their foreheads, they can and will be touched by this demonic locust-like plague. It's interesting. The reason I think John uses the imagery of locusts is because these are things are are flying but there's also other ways where this matches what we do know about locusts every year the season for locusts lasts about five months and these have power for five months locusts are used throughout scripture as a way that god brings judgment brings plagues to the earth like in egypt they descend over everything and consume everything This is a plague that is under the authority of God. Even though their purpose is wicked, it's going to be for God's glory. And these demonic beings are nothing more than insects to the God that created them. And during all this, 2 Timothy 2.19 says, The Lord knows those that are his. He protects those that are his. As far as the rest of the earth, verse 6 says, in those days men shall seek death and shall not find it and shall desire to die and death shall flee from them. For century after century, the people of the earth have spent their time and money and effort trying their best to elude death to no avail. Death always finds them. But a dramatic change happens in this plague. Humanity turns, John pictures them turning to run after death and death outruns them. They can't find it. Death takes a holiday because this demonic horde is happy to plague the earth and because the poisonous plague of their scorpion-like sting tortures the residents of the earth, humanity will long to embrace death and find that it eludes them. So we've seen the abyss opened in verses 1 through 10. Now look at the authority identified in verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 says, They, that is that horde, had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue has his name Apollyon. We saw that star that had fallen from heaven in verse 1. And now any doubts about his identification as Satan, I think, should be removed. John gives us a word here in Hebrew and in Greek, Abaddon and Apollyon. Both of those words essentially mean destroyer. I think it makes the most sense that this king of the abyss is Satan, the destroyer. Abaddon comes from the Hebrew word that's used many times in the Old Testament to describe the place of everlasting punishment, that place of being everlasting, forever destroyed. It's possible that John gives this title in Greek, Apollyon, just because no reader of the first century who received this letter would have failed to hear the echo of the name Apollo in that word. Apollo, the favorite pagan god of the Roman emperor, the Roman emperor who proclaimed himself to be Apollo incarnate, 
had begun this fierce persecution and attempting to destroy Christians. But for John, there's another destroyer coming. And this powerful destroyer hates God, hates righteousness, hates all of God's creation, even to the point of hating wicked men who follow him. And yet he's going to be used as a tool by God as he uses his wickedness to judge the wicked. Meanwhile, all of that is just the fifth trumpet. All of that is just the first woe. Verse 12 says, one woe is past. Behold, two more woes hereafter. Can it get any worse? Absolutely it can. With the fifth trumpet, this demonic plague was prohibited from taking lives. But that changes next when the sixth trumpet sounds. We'll see these evil angels unleashed in verse, starting at verse 13. The sixth angel sounded. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed, which are, were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year, for to slay the third part of men. And the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000, and I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Here's this picture of the riders and the horses. And them that sat on them, having breastplates of fire and of jacinth and brimstone, and the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions, and out of their mouth issued fire and smoke and brimstone by these three was a third part of the men killed by the fire and by smoke and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths for their powers in their mouth and in their tails for the tails were like unto serpents i'm sorry serpents and had heads and with them they do hurt these angels in verses 14 and 15 i do think that they are fallen angels, since I know of nowhere else in Scripture that holy angels are described as being bound in any way. Instead, it seems like these are demonic forces plaguing the earth. The source of this is the four angels that it says are bound at the great river Euphrates. Let me just say something about the translation here in the text. If you are expecting that there are four fallen angels bound underwater somewhere in, in the river Euphrates, that's not likely what John means. The Greek preposition here is epi, which means on or at. These are bound and they are restrained, not in, but at the river Euphrates, which in John's time was the easternmost border of the Roman Empire. They are being restrained from coming west, but they are set loose at this time and they bring an army with them. Now, sort of like with the fifth trumpet, my youthly confidence of what's described in these verses has waned. In the fifth trumpet, I was sure it was assault helicopters and I was sure that these horses with fiery breastplates issuing fire and smoke and brimstone from their mouths. That just has to be armored tanks with large cannon turrets. Don't bother confusing me with the serpent-like tails and the heads like lions. 
right? I just wanted to grab the things that made sense with what I wanted to believe. Listen, I, I don't discount the possibility that the army that's being set loose to come west from the river Euphrates is a human army, but it is fueled by demonic influence as well. If in the fifth plague it was some airborne plague, the sixth trumpet sounds and something more like a cavalry charge is unleashed. John says there are horsemen numbering in verse 16, 200,000, 000, and that's the only way first century Greek had of saying 200 million. And if that seems big, look at verse 16 again. John answers any skeptic and he says, look, I heard the number of them. I think that's John saying, look, man, I didn't count them. I heard the report. I overheard a report of their number. Now, there are human armies that big. But the wicked demons waging spiritual warfare is the power behind this. And if this appears completely chaotic, it is. And yet, these fallen angels are unbound. They are let loose for a specific, at a specific time for a specific purpose. The time and purpose are described in verse 15. They were prepared, it says, for an hour, a day, a month, and a year. That is not saying that it took a year, a month, a day, and an hour to prepare this army and to assemble them. It's saying that they have been prepared for this specific hour, this specific day, this specific month, this specific year. This is unfolding on God's timetable. The moment this happens is already marked on the Lord's calendar. Not only is it a specific time, but their task is specific at the end of verse 15. It was to slay one-third part of men. This cavalry of 200 million riders, John says, are riding horses of fiery with fiery breastplates of jacinth and brimstone. I think that's the description of their yellow, red, and blue. Heads like lions, mouth issuing smoke and fire. And with that smoke, fire, and brimstone, one-third of humanity is killed. That's sort of surprising math when you start to calculate this. Back in Revelation 6, verse 8, when the fourth seal was opened and the fourth rider, that pale, sickly horse, comes forward and the rider brings death and hell. It described one-fourth of the world population dies at that point. So just doing the math, at the current level of about 8 billion people in the world, that's a total of 2 billion deaths back in Revelation 6-8. Now, one-third of the remaining population dies. That's an equivalent number to the one-fourth in Revelation 6-8. Like, just doing the math, if there's 8 billion people in the world, when one-fourth die, that's 2 billion people die, leaving 6 billion left. And now, one-third of what's left die, that's another 2 billion people that die. So half the world's population has died at this point. But if we keep our eyes on the big picture, the most astounding part of Revelation 9 is not the description of these beastly demons and 
in the tribulation or, or the horrific death totals that accumulate, the most astonishing part of this chapter is the world's reaction to the judgment of God. Look at wicked hearts exposed in the last two verses, verses 20 and 21. The rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders nor their sorceries nor their fornication nor of their thefts. As John receives these, this vision and records it faithfully, this is his focus. For all the judgment and, and terror that has come, the world still adamantly and arrogantly refuses to repent of their sins and appeal to God's mercy. The sins are many. John lumps them all into the category of the wicked works of their hands. That is, the sins we commit. But he lists five specific categories which are merely fitting examples of those sins. He says they won't stop worshiping devils. There should be no doubt in your mind that the act of worshiping an idol is in fact the act of worshiping demons. At the very least, it's worship that is influenced by demons. The Lord judged the idolatry of Egypt with those plagues which appeared to be aimed at specific entities. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 20 that the things to which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not God. Whether knowingly or unknowingly, the world would prefer to worship the very creatures that destroy them more than the God who created them. John says that these are also idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood. So the direct worship of evil spirits is wicked, but the worship of things created by your own hands is both wicked and stupid. Even if you could remove the spiritual influence that's behind the scenes, those idols are just, John says, inanimate objects. They see nothing, they hear nothing, they know nothing, they say nothing, they can do nothing for you. And that heart of idolatry that existed in the first century will exist in this time described in the future. And don't fool yourself into thinking that it, it doesn't exist now in between. Anything that seduces you from a full-hearted commitment to the Lord God, your creator, is an idol. John says that they continue to murder. The, the violent judgment facing mankind is not an entirely new thing. It's existed since the fall. It's in our hearts filled with anger and hatred and a desire to kill. People will continue to have no concern about the lives of others. John says they continue in their sorceries. The habits of witchcraft and, and magic have held sway over mankind for centuries. And that's what that word describes there when he says sorceries. But I'm not so sure that it doesn't go beyond that in our modern world. The word for sorceries there is the Greek word pharmakon, where we get our word for pharmacy, or our word for drugs. 
The use of mind-altering substances was closely linked to magic in the first century, and we haven't gotten far from that today. It is not hard at all to imagine in Revelation 9 some drug addict who sees all these things unfold and turns immediately back to their drugs for comfort. They continue, John says, in their fornications. Of course, that's the Greek word porneia. It's a very broad word. It means sexual immorality, all forms of sexual thought and sexual action that deviates from God's command would be included in that. And they continue in their thefts, John said, simply stealing, taking what's not yours. The world facing judgment will continue in the very sins that have brought that judgment because that's what's in their hearts. You might think, well, but, you know, facing God's wrath this way will make the world straighten up. Would it? (laughs) Apparently not. And even if someone did see this judgment coming and brought their lives into some sort of compliance out of fear, would it have changed their heart? Lord Jesus is pretty clear that sin begins as a heart problem. So even if they complied outwardly out of fear in their heart, would they love God supremely? Would they stop holding the anger that leads to murder? Would their heart still lust for perverse sexual satisfaction? Do you stop being a thief by not outwardly taking what's not yours? Or doesn't the last commandment say, you shall not covet. You should not even want what's not yours. What will change a man's heart if God doesn't do it? If you won't hear the good news of Jesus and turn from your sin, even knowing this kind of judgment awaits, then you will not turn from your sin even when this kind of judgment comes. The ultimate depravity of the human heart is described here in verses 20 and 21. Because even in the face of these plagues, sinful men will continue to rebel against their creator and desperately cling to their sin. Y'all, Satan and his demons are real and they have veiled the truth of the gospel of Jesus. They have blinded the minds of the world. They have set out to be a destroyer of all of God's creation so that they are clearly, in Revelation 9, satisfied to wreak havoc even on the very people who have followed them in their cause. Knowing that to be true, if you will not turn from your sin now, don't expect that you'll do it later when this judgment comes.